0: Let's give ourselves now to the reading of Psalm chapter 79. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is a psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance, they have defiled your holy temple, they have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire?" Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and have laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, for our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins, for your, for your name's sake. Why? Should the nations say, Where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. That is Psalm 79. Let's go now to Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Here we come to the fifth of seven seals opened by Christ before John. When he opened the fifth seal, that is when Christ opened the fifth seal, John saw under the altar So far, the reading of God's holy word, we do pray that the Lord would also bless uh, the preaching of it. Uh, Brothers and sisters, there are three principles that arise from the text that we're considering today. Uh, First of all, we must come to terms with the fact that in this life there will be Christian martyrs. Uh, Some Christians will indeed die for their faith in Christ. Secondly, Uh, Christians should take comfort in the fact that God keeps his martyrs. We see here in the opening of the fifth seal that to die in Christ is really to live in his presence. And thirdly, we should remember that God will avenge the blood of his martyrs in the end. Uh, Though the wicked seem to prevail in this life, uh, they will not prevail forever, but will certainly face judgment unless they repent. So I want to take these principles one at a time uh, in this sermon today. First of all, we must come to terms with the fact that in this life there will be Christian martyrs. A a Christian martyr is one who is killed because of his or her faith in Christ. Uh, It is the Greek word martyria that is translated witness in verse 9 here of Revelation chapter 6. So you can hear the word martyr in it, can't you? Uh, A martyr is one who is a witness to Christ, one who verbally testifies to Christ or who lives in such a way that their life is a life of witness, but who is slain for uh, that witness. They are martyrs. And the opening of the fifth seal here in Revelation chapter 6 reveals that in this life, in this world as it is now, in the time between Christ's first and second coming, there will be uh, Christian martyrs. Jesus told us so didn't he? In Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 14, which is a text that I have read many times already as we have considered these seven seals. There's a reason I continue to read it. It is because what Jesus says so directly in Matthew 24 is portrayed for us here in the opening of the seven seals of Revelation chapter 6. And I will read it again when Jesus was on earth and with his disciples and when they were curious about uh, the time of the end and how things would go between their lifetime and then. And he said most plainly to them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. Do you hear it there? Christ's words to his disciples, this will happen. They will deliver you up to tribulation and even put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. This is the most extensive teaching that Jesus himself delivered to his disciples concerning eschatology, concerning how things would go leading up to the end of time. And he spoke to his disciples, those who were alive with him there in the earliest days of the church, as the church was in fact being born. And he said to them, you are going to experience tribulation, and you are even, some of you, going to experience death. On account of me. Here in the book of Revelation, we see evidence of this very thing, but from a heavenly vantage point. uh, John saw, when the fifth seal was opened, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. What does he see then, except for the heavenly reality that lies hidden to us? according to our natural eyes. What do we see on earth? We see the wars. We hear the rumors of wars. We see and experience the trials and tribulation. We even know what it is to observe one being martyred. That is the physical reality that is perceivable to us. But what was John shown here with the opening of the fifth seal, except the heavenly reality that lies beyond our ability to perceive? He saw the souls of those who had been slain and where are they except under the altar and before God in the very presence of God though they died really they live and John was given a wonderful glimpse into that reality. I think we should ask the question what is the relationship between the first four seals and this fifth one? They seem so different don't they? It's almost as if they're completely disconnected from one another. When we saw the first four seals open, remember that uh, John was given a vision of four horsemen riding upon four horses. Actually, five horsemen. The last horse had two riders on it, Death and Hades. But he's given a vision of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. They are oftentimes called. And, and what were those horsemen permitted to do except to go out Where? Into all the earth and to take peace from it. Uh, a quarter of the earth, we are told, was affected by their activities. And there they are, they are permitted. By God To take peace from the earth. Wars and famines are the result of their activities. And then all of a sudden we have this rather jarring transition from seal 4 to seal 5. The two do not seem to relate to one another at all, but they relate, of course they do, they relate greatly. And what we see here is that the souls of the martyrs that are seen by John when the fifth seal are opened are there in heaven because of the activities of these four horsemen of the apocalypse that have just been described to us. They are the Christians. They are the saints who have been caught up in the turmoils and tribulations and wars and persecutions that constantly plague this earth. And where are they then? They have been killed physically, but their souls are in the presence of God. That is what John sees when this Fifth seal is opened. It is important for us to recognize this very basic principle that there will be martyrs in this age between Christ's first and second coming. Uh, That is the first principle clearly communicated with the opening of the fifth seal. In other words, uh, don't be naive, Christians, concerning how things will go in this world for us. We should not assume that the world is going to have a love affair with the church. And that the church is going to be respected by the world. I think we struggle greatly with this false hope and false expectation in our modern time. The church seems to think it can be friends with the world. And even tries to be very hard to be friends with the world. And then is surprised when the world wants nothing to do with them. And even goes so far as to persecute uh, the church. The second principle to notice in this text is that um, Christ, God, keeps his martyrs and Christians should take great comfort in this fact that God keeps his martyrs. Notice that though they died in the flesh, really they live. And notice that not only are they alive, but they are in God's presence, able to cry out to him. And I want you to notice what they call him. The title, I think, is so significant. Here are those who had been slain for their witness, slain for their testimony. And how do they refer to the Lord? Do they, as it were, shake their fists at Him, saying, How dare you allow me to suffer persecution like this? Or, Where were you, Lord? Were things out of your control? No, instead they refer to Him in this way, O Sovereign Lord, holy and true. They do not complain against him. They do not pretend as if things were out of his control, but they refer to him as the sovereign one. They recognize that God was sovereign even over this, the loss of their physical life. And they refer to him as Lord. They are devoted to him still. Of course they are. They are in his presence in heaven. And they refer to him as as holy and true. And so even those who have come through the most difficult kind of tribulation and have experienced persecution to the fullest extent Extent they look at God and they say, you are holy. You are holy and you are true. They do not complain against him. They do not accuse him of wrongdoing, but rather here they are crying out to their Lord and giving him praise as the one who is holy and true even still. And notice also that they are clothed in his presence. They're clothed. What it looks like for a soul to be clothed, I do not know, but we are in the book of Revelation, aren't we? And we see that the book is filled with symbolism everywhere. But that is what John saw. He saw that they were clothed in white garments as they were there before God standing in his presence. And this should bring to remembrance the things that were said to the Christians who were living in those seven churches to whom the book of Revelation was originally addressed. Some of them were facing persecution. Some of them would be even killed for their faith. Christ said it directly to them but notice this the promise that christ held out to those christians some of them in these seven churches yet you still have a few names in sardis people who have not soiled their garments and they will walk with me in what in white for they are worthy and again in Revelation three five, we read these words, "...the one, one who conquers will be the, clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." And then again, in Revelation 3.18, we read, "...I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen." And solve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. I want you to see the connection here between the opening of this fifth seal and the letters to the seven churches that we have already considered. What was said to the saints in those churches who were experiencing persecution? Persevere. Remain faithful even to death. Do not compromise in the faith. It is worth it to Continue on worshiping Christ in this world. And if you do, you will be clothed in white and you will walk with me in glory. That is what was promised to them. And then as John was shown the vision in heaven and comes to the fifth seal, it is so. The very thing that was promised to them came to be. John was shown a vision of this very reality in heaven. Uh, When does this happen? It's an important question. Is this something that will only happen in the future? Uh, Absolutely not. This happens when Christians die. They are in God's presence according to the spirit, not in the flesh yet. That will take place at the resurrection of the dead. But it happens when Christians die. And does it only happen to martyrs? Here is another question we must ask. John saw the souls of martyrs there under the altar crying out to God so are we to think that only martyrs enjoy uh, the presence of God upon death immediately Uh, certainly not the book of revelation at other times will expand the view a bit so that we see all of the redeemed in God's presence according to the spirit upon death but here John chapter 6 and the fifth seal hones in upon just the martyrs we have here a very narrow perspective on them and why do you think that might be Why the focus upon martyrs? Why the focus upon those who have paid the ultimate price and who have indeed given their life for Christ? Uh, Well, I think it is this. um, uh, Christ has already compelled his church to remain faithful even to the point of death. And here, uh, what is shown to them is that it indeed is worth it. To die for Christ is really to live. And so we have this focused view given to us of the martyrs and if it is true that it is worth it to die for christ to be a martyr is it also not true that it is worth it to suffer for christ in other ways it is worth it to give all for him and certainly we ought to give all for him day by day and not just be willing to die for him in the end i think this brothers and sisters must have been very encouraging for that original audience don't you think So here they are suffering persecution and in this vision shown to John, they are being encouraged. Again, it is worth it. To die for Christ is really to live. You will be in his presence. You will be clothed by him there under the altar. This, by the way, the reference to the altar is is a reference to the altar of incense that stood before the the curtain which separated the holy place from the most, most holy place. It was upon that altar that incense would be burned, which symbolized the prayer of the saints that would then permeate into that most holy place in the Jerusalem temple, right? But here John sees not the altar of incense as it was in the Jerusalem temple, but the altar of incense as it is where? In heaven, as it actually is. And these saints are here offering up prayers to God on behalf of those who are still on the earth. It was upon that altar that once a year blood would be poured in order to atone for the sins of the people on the Day of Atonement. And these, all, these, these martyrs are under that altar, symbolizing the very fact that their blood poured out was as an act of worship before God. And so there they are under that altar and they are, they are worshipping the Lord even still. This must have been very encouraging to them. Uh, they were compelled by Christ in those letters to the seven churches to remain faithful. To the church in Smyrna, Christ said this, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So imagine being a Christian in Smyrna and reading that letter for the first time. Imagine if Christ spoke that word to us as a particular congregation. Emmaus Christian Fellowship, I'm saying to you, be faithful even unto death. You are about to experience a brief but very intense period of persecution. Do not compromise. Imagine that. And here we are all thinking, my goodness, is this really going to happen? Are we really going to face persecution like this? Will I persevere? Will I remain faithful? I wonder what attendance would be like the next Sunday. If a word like that was spoken to us, right? Will I remain faithful? Should I? Or should I be done with this whole Christianity thing? Well, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, it was told to them that this would happen. They were about to experience ten days of tribulation, not literal, but symbolic of a brief but complete and intense period of time. Should I remain faithful to Christ? And then they flip a few pages over. They hear it read to them, right? All of a sudden, the fifth seal is broken. And what does John see but the souls of the martyrs in the presence of God? It must have been deeply encouraging to them. Yes, I I will be faithful even unto death. For to live, for for to die to Christ is actually... To live in his presence. To the church in Pergamum, same thing. I know where you dwell, Christ said, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness or my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so this must have been very encouraging for the church in John's day. And it has been encouraging to the Christians who have lived in every age, even to us up up until, up until this, this present day. Indeed, there are Christians all over the world today who experience this sort of persecution. I wonder what reading the book of Revelation is like for them. There must be a real potency to it. It must be very raw. It should be for us too, but it requires us to think very deeply about these things and to choose to take them seriously. Thirdly, we should remember... That God will avenge the blood of his martyrs in the end. Though the wicked seem to prevail in this life, they will not prevail forever, but will certainly face judgment. What is the question that these martyrs ask of the Lord? O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? How long, O Lord? This should also cause us to remember that psalm that I read at the very beginning of the service. Isn't it interesting that Old Testament saints, right, were asking the same question. There, Israel and Jerusalem were being ravaged by the enemies of God and and the people of God are being slain. I mean, what is described to us here is tremendous destruction. And yet the psalmist is asking that very question. How long, O Lord, until you avenge our enemies? How long are you going to be angry with Israel, your people? Are you not going to judge the nations who have treated us so harshly? We want to worship you. We want to be faithful to you. How long, Lord? Do you see that what the Christians in the early church faced were also faced by the faithful, even under the old covenant? That this question asked by the martyrs here was not a new question, but a very old one. For ever since the beginning of time, ever since the fall of man, there has been enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent has sought to persecute and put to death even the seed of the woman. It was seen even there with Cain and Abel. Right, And the faithful ones have always cried out, saying, How long, O Lord, until you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? And how did the Lord respond to them? Did He give them a date? We should not be surprised that He did not give them a date. Never does God give us a date. Why do we speculate about dates? It's a waste of time. But instead, here is what God does. He gave them each a white robe and told them, Rest a little longer. They are resting. I think that is important to notice here. They are resting. They are no longer experiencing persecution or suffering. They are resting. But rest a little longer. What does that mean? I do not know. Obviously, it has reference to about 2,000 years of of human history. Uh, Rest a little longer until... Now, here is the reference to time perhaps it is not a date but something must be accomplished before the judgment comes until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been so you're to rest a little longer until the number of the martyrs is fulfilled and so here we put to bed that ridiculous notion that God's will for our lives is that we be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. Actually, what we are told here is that God's will for some of us, at least, is that we would be killed, that we would suffer to the uttermost for the name of Christ. Puts a little bit of a different perspective on things, doesn't it? Um, That really, we're not to live for this world Really, we're to expect as Christians to suffer. Some will be martyred, but all will suffer in some way in uh, this world. And when asked the question, how long, Lord? His response is that it's going to be a little while. Rest a little while until the number of the martyrs is complete. We, see, we will see in the weeks to come that the sixth and seventh seals uh, will describe Uh, The final judgment. Uh, First from an earthly perspective, then from a heavenly one. So are you getting the picture here, brothers and sisters? What, what, What do these seven seals do for us except portray how things will be in the time between Christ's first and second coming? There will be wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be famine. There will be persecution. It will be restrained. Only the fourth of the earth is affected by those four horsemen. There will be martyrs in this age between Christ's first and second coming. But where will they go in the moment that they are killed for their faith? They will be in the presence of God in heaven. And then when the number of martyrs is complete, the end will come and it will come suddenly. Just read through Revelation chapter 6 and see how abrupt the transition is from the fifth seal to the sixth seal. And the sixth seal describes very briefly and very quickly the final judgment of God as it will be from an earthly perspective. And then we have this delay, chapter 7, and then in chapter 8 we return to the seventh seal. When it is opened, the same judgment is referred to, but it, it is seen from a heavenly perspective. Heaven is silent as heaven witnesses the final judgment. There are no words spoken there. And so I want you to see this pattern from earth to heaven, Back to earth and then to heaven. This is all a heavenly vision being shown to John. That is true. But what is said to him pertains to the earth and then to heaven and then to the earth and then to heaven. The four horsemen go out into all of the earth, and when they do their business, souls are seen in heaven, those who have been martyred, and they're crying out, How long, O Lord? Well, until the last drop of blood falls from the last martyr. You will have to rest, then the end will come. Sixth seal is opened, back to the earth, that perspective again. The final judgment comes and men are crying out and hiding themselves in the rocks from the wrath of the Lamb. And then there is delay, seventh seal is opened and again, heavenly perspective. Do you see how it works here? Uh, But I think that this promise that judgment will eventually come is in a way encouraging to Christians it's especially encouraging to those who are being persecuted i do want to take great care here we should not take pleasure In the death of the wicked or in the judgment of the ungodly. There is a sense in which we should take no pleasure in that at all. But instead we should love our enemies. We should pray for those who persecute us. We should do good to them. We should seek their salvation. I hope all of you would agree that this is only right that we do so. This was the way of Christ. Father forgive them for they know not what they do. In fact when we read God's word we come to Ezekiel chapter 33 verse 11 where God when speaking about the judgment of the wicked expressly says this I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked but that the wicked turn from his way and live turn back turn back from your evil ways for why will you die O house of Israel this is the way that God speaks There is a sense in which God uh, will judge fully and finally and will not delay in doing so and will do so with perfect justice and in perfect righteousness. That is all true, but we cannot say that God takes pleasure in it in the way that He takes pleasure in saving the wicked and the unrighteous. And neither should we. But on the other hand, I think you would agree that there is something encouraging to know that in the end God will set all things right. In fact, it is this truth that helps us to live in this world where the wicked seem to prevail without feeling as if it is our job to take vengeance upon them. Uh, We are able to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us and do good to those who do us wrong. Why? Because it is not our job to judge. We are to leave the vengeance to the Lord. We are to leave it to Him. It is not our place. And so this, in some ways, is encouraging. In some ways, this perspective that is given to us here in the fifth seal, but especially the sixth and seventh that we will eventually come to, it frees us to love as Christ has called us to love in this world, even uh, those who are persecuting us. I'd like to close with a few points of application. Uh, First of all, I'd like to take what is shown to us here in this fifth seal, And I'd like to think about what is portrayed as it pertains to us looking outward upon the world. Think about the world in which we live. Think about the atrocities that are committed. Think about the persecution that is experienced by our brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world. And think about the persecution that is experienced by us here. There is a form of persecution that we endure, isn't there? To me, I think of of it this way. The more we seek to do church the way that Christ has called us to do church, the more of an outcast I feel like in this world. Have you noticed that? I really do feel like a freak sometimes. People look at me like I'm very odd, you know. And I never wanted to be a freak. I never wanted to be an odd person. I like to be liked. Don't you like to be liked? I like to be liked. But oftentimes, walking with Christ involves being willing to not be liked, right? And so when I look out upon the world, I see that there is this hostility between the world and the the Christian. There is this hostility between the kingdom of, of the world and the kingdom of Christ. It's everywhere. In some parts of the world, the hostility is very apparent. There is physical persecution that takes place. It's obvious, Sometimes Christians are forced into poverty because of their faith. It's obvious because of economic sanctions or, or whatever. It's more obvious. But I would, I would really challenge us to see that it is here, too, in this country. And it's here in a big way. It is difficult to walk as a Christian, as a true Christian in this world. Plenty go about what, proclaiming Christ in this world, but not walking as a Christian. They say, I don't experience any persecution. Of course you don't. Because you're living a worldly life. Seeking the approval of the world. But to live in this world as a Christian, decidedly so, in a pronounced way, we should not expect peace and harmony with the world. We should not expect it. We should not be surprised when it is somewhat difficult to walk as Christ has called us to in this place. The fact that the fifth seal reveals that there will be martyrs in this world, in the time between Christ's first and second coming, also means that there will be forms of persecution that are lesser than that too. Of course there will be. At the same time, when we look out upon the world, we should not uh, feel that it is our job to take vengeance upon those who do us wrong, but rather we are to leave it to the Lord. And so we have a very particular calling, don't we? On the one hand, we are to endure suffering for the sake of Christ, And on the other hand, we also are to endure that suffering with the love of Christ, showing love to our enemies, as Christ has called us to. We are to mimic our Lord in this. Think about the way that he lived. He endured suffering from beginning to end, and yet he loved so consistently even the sinner, calling even those who were crucifying him to repent, Lord do not hold it against them they do not know what they do Uh, this is the way of the Lord and this is to be the way of the Christian also we can take what is revealed to us here in this fifth seal and reflect upon our own hearts the question that I have for you is are you living a life of martyrdom you know I've heard questions uh, Christians ask themselves this question would I die if I had to you know What would I do if I were in that moment where, uh, you know, someone was saying to me, deny Christ or die? What would I do? Do you want to know the truth of the matter? We we don't know what we would do. Do you remember Peter? Remember Peter, you know, the leader of the band, you know, what what does he say to the Lord? Lord, if I have to, I'll, I'll die for you. Christ looks at him and says, Peter, the, is, the, the cock will not crow until you have denied me uh, three times. And he denied him. He denied him. Though he was so self-confident about it, right? I will never deny you, Lord. These Everyone here might run away. I will never deny. He denied uh, Christ. And he wasn't even being threatened You know, vigorously. It was a young servant girl who, hey, you look like one of the guys that used to follow that Jesus. around. Never. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know what we will do in that moment. I hope that we would be convinced in our hearts that indeed we would sacrifice all for Christ. But the truth of the matter is that we don't know. Christ uh, was denied by Peter. Peter denied Christ. But later in life, Peter did give his life for Christ, didn't he, after he was restored. I think the question that we should be more consumed with then is, am I living a life of martyrdom? Do you know what I mean about that? Am I daily dying to self and living to Christ? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Christ is saying, if you want to follow after me, then it is going to be a life of martyrdom. It's going to be a life of self-denial, day after day after day. That is what matters. I really find it difficult to believe that a Christian would be willing to literally die for christ if he is not willing to die daily to self and to live for christ do you know what i mean there so i have in mind the the husband who who goes home and is unwilling to lead or to serve his wife at all but is selfish always serve me do what i want you to do and if you don't there'll be hell to pay right right and there that man professes christ will he die for christ I have a hard time thinking that he will. He cannot even die to self today and live for Christ. He is not living a life of martyrdom at all. Or I think of the Christian who at work is so ashamed to confess the name of Christ, but rather just runs with the world constantly, talks like the co workers talk, parties with the co workers on the weekends, looks at what the co workers look at, and so on and so forth. And here they are pondering the question would I die for Christ? Who really cares at this point? whether you would die for Christ, the more important question is, why don't you live for Him today? For you can't even deny yourself today and live for the Lord. I think this scene of the martyrs alive in heaven should encourage all Christians to live for Christ in this world. It is worth it to die for Him if indeed you are honored to be called to do so. And it is also worth it to live for him day to day, even if you will never be called to be a martyr. We must put to death the desires of the flesh. Some of you are ruled by the passions of your flesh, and you are not ruled by Christ. You give in to the passions of your flesh constantly, instead of giving in to Christ and to his Holy Spirit. Some of you are still in love with the world. You have a love affair with the world. And so you walk in this world and you are all about money and all about possessions and all about pleasure. And you look at this world and you say, I love this place. I love it and I am living for it. Here is where my treasure is. Will you die for Christ in the end? I I, I find it hard to believe that you will because you are not living for him now. Your love affair is with this world and not with him. Your eyes are not fixed upon the heavenly reality but upon earth your treasure is here. Why would you ever sacrifice all for the sake of Christ and for the reward that is in heaven? Some are living for the respect of man. It's amazing how strong this temptation is to live in such a way where people in this world look at you and say, I, I, I like that guy. I respect him, right? Right? We should not live for the respect of man, but for the respect of Christ. There are some men and women that we should hope to be respected by, that is, the godly. We hope to be respected by the godly, but the ungodly, we should not care whether or not they respect us, but rather we should give our allegiance to Christ and to Christ alone. We should learn to put away all selfishness. I love our counseling ministry at Emmaus, I do. We're busy. I praise the Lord for that, actually. Um, do come to us if you are struggling with something in particular so that the pastors here can help you through that. Um, but it is amazing how often the root of the problem, whatever the problem is, be it marriage or otherwise, it's, 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 it's amazing how often the root of the problem is simple, old-fashioned selfishness. You know? You're living for self Constantly. You're unwilling to serve others and to live for the good of others. You're unwilling ultimately to love. You love yourself too much. And so that's my deeper concern, not necessarily to ask the question will you die for Christ, but will you live for Him today? And I'm confident that if you're living for Him today, dying to self daily, living a life of martyrdom, then yes, in the end, if you have cultivated that mindset, if you have cultivated that habit, if you have that view of the world, uh, indeed, it is likely that you will stand for Him when the threat of death comes, if it ever comes. I think we live in a time, I know that we live in a time where we do not experience physical persecution like some of our brothers and sisters in Christ do around the world, I I often think about, what does that do to the church? I do not want to experience physical persecution. I'm not asking for that. But what kind of effect does that have on the church and upon our spiritual lives? I think the effect that it has is this, is it makes it very easy to be a Christian. And it's very easy for people to profess faith in Christ because there is no cost associated with it. At least, there doesn't seem to be. But the truth of the matter is, there is a cost associated with being a Christian, even if we live in a land that does not persecute. The cost is this, take up your cross and follow him day by day by day. Physical persecution has a way of demanding that it be so. But when we live at peace in a world where there is no physical persecution, in a land where there is no physical persecution, we have to think deeply about our faith and choose to make it so that we daily take up our cross and follow after Christ. Lastly, I want to apply what is shown to us here in the fifth seal uh, to our thoughts concerning those who have passed from this world. That memorial service yesterday was just such a blessing to me. I don't don't know what it was about it um, exactly. I need to think about it more. But I was so encouraged, brothers and sisters, uh, that that you came out to show honor to our brother Stephen Hawes, who has passed from this world. And it was such an encouraging thing to be able to stand in front of of a group of people as a pastor and say, "This, this man was a member of our church, you know, and I had the privilege of shepherding him for the two and a half years that I knew him. And we together walked with him and we saw his faith and we saw his eagerness to grow in the faith. We saw the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we are sad that Stephen is gone. Of course we are. But how, how encouraging it was to be able to say, we know where he is. Where is he? he well, he's in the place that John was given a glimpse of. When this fifth seal was opened, he was not a martyr, of course, but he's in that same place. His soul is present with God in heaven. He is at peace. He is resting now for a little while, right, until the end of time. And so it is only right that we Christians mourn the loss of those who have passed from this earth. But we must mourn well. And as Christians should mourn. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. It's his way of talking about those who have died. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So he says to the Christians, it's right that you grieve when someone passes from this earth, be it by way of martyrdom or some other means. It's expected that you mourn, but it is also expected that you do not mourn as others mourn who have no hope. Do not mourn like the non-believer mourns, but mourn as a Christian who has hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And so when we mourn the passing of those whom we love from this world. If they were in Christ, our grief should look a particular way. We should mourn, but with hope in our hearts and even joy in our hearts that there they are at peace with God and there we will see them again when the Lord returns and makes all things new. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? God, you have been merciful to us in so many ways. And one of the ways in which you have been merciful to us is to reveal yourself to us and to reveal truth to us. We thank you for the book of Revelation, which does that in such a vivid way. We thank you for this image shown to us concerning the souls of martyrs crying out before you, but clothed by you and at peace, Lord. That is encouraging to us, Lord, to know Uh, That when we pass from this earth, if we are in Christ Jesus, we will be in your presence. Lord, I pray that that would have its effect upon all of us. That we would live for you day by day. uh, Even to the point of being willing to die for you because we have so set our hope and our love upon you and the things that are in heaven and not upon the things of this earth. Lord, change us if it is not so. Change us from the core, Lord. Give us more faith. Give us eyes to see this heavenly reality that you have revealed to us so that we might live for you more more faithfully in this world. We say these things in the name of Jesus Christ who died and who rose again. And all of God's people say, Amen.